0: As we uh, come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word and we're grateful that uh, uh, you have given it to us. It's it's amazing for us to think, humbling for us to think uh, that the God of all that is uh, wrote down for us through particular human instruments that he raised up to write um, a word that would be trustworthy, that would be infallible, that would speak to us all that we need for life and for godliness. And we pray now that as we read it together, as we think it through, that you would be with us and also then prepare us on this day to receive at your table. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Nehemiah in chapter 12, please. Nehemiah. Chapter 12, I want to read just verses 44 through 47, Nehemiah chapter 12, please. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the field's of the towns for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the services of their God in the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And in all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Well, what I want to do today, if God will help me, is to make a very simple, but I think very significant application of this passage to us. Simple, uh, perhaps not immediately obvious, but I think as I lay it out, you go, oh yes, of course. And uh, yet, so necessary for us, if we are to continue to live and to flourish uh, as a group, a company, a church, uh, the people of God in this in this place, now, you remember just to catch us up uh, where we are, um, Nehemiah was sent uh, by God to rebuild the walls around. Uh, Jerusalem, you remember that was necessary because the people of God, especially in the southern kingdom, had been exiled into Babylon for 70 years or so. And by the providence and promise of God, they were sent back, those whom God had worked in their hearts to go back, sent back to, to rebuild, really, um, their worshiping life before God as the people of God. This remnant even, uh, in the southern kingdom would go back and, and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the surrounding areas of, of Judah and Benjamin and those tribes and would be once again the worshiping community, congregation, church of, of God. You remember all this, uh, was promised by God. You remember the promise to Abraham and he said there would be descendants from his family, out of which one would come and who would bless all the families of the earth. Now, we know that very one to be Jesus from the family of Abraham, but you also know that the family of Abraham ultimately was was, was in Egypt and enslaved and then delivered. And it was when they met together with God at this mountain, Mount Sinai, after being delivered from Egypt, that we see the company of people, this church of God coming together. It, it's, a, it's a wonderful scene because what we have is God speaking to his people from the mountain and there they are gathered to hear his word. They've been washed, that is cleansed, if you will, at least outwardly, and here they come together with God and ultimately a meal will be enjoyed by some uh, on the mountain with God, putting all of this together. And what they were becoming at that point was becoming a congregation of people, uh, a church, really. Um, the Old Testament word for uh, assembly is translated in the New Testament, really, or in Greek as uh, ekklesia, or, or, or an assembly, a calling out of people to assemble, to gather. And that's the church, that's the church of Jesus Christ. And so we, we see it back beginning even in the old covenants. And, and, and Nehemiah has been sent back to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. But we know it's more than that. He's, he's, he's come back to rebuild the walls so the city can be repopulated. So that this worshiping community of God can be reestablished. So once the walls were rebuilt, it, it isn't that, that all was done for him. But rather um, that it was now just beginning. Uh, I would rather that the book of Nehemiah ended verse 43 of chapter 12. Uh, The reason is because there's great rejoicing, there's such joy that it's heard all over the place now you remember that this renewal of 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 these people really began back in chapter eight when the book of the law the, the law was read for a half a day uh in their midst and they listened to it and ultimately they were commanded by the leaders to be joyful after having heard this word and so there was great joy that broke out and, and then remember they experienced this festival the feast of booths which which uh, was a feast of rejoicing and so for another week or so they rejoiced again and then they they heard the word once more and this time this word broke their hearts and they began to see their sin as they saw themselves in the presence of God and they began then to 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 weep and 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 repent of their sin and renew this covenant with God and they made vows once again to him to follow him and these particular areas that they had that they had broken. And then the day came. The day came that they could they could they could dedicate the walls that they had been rebuilt. And you remember last Sunday we talked about the great Thanksgiving, the great joy that was that was theirs as these two Choirs. One went to the north on the wall, one went to the south on the wall. And, and they encircled the city with great thanks and great praise. And, and all the people would gather there as well. And and, and and that's the joy that was heard far and far away. And I'm thinking, yes, let's end it now. This is great. This is where I want to live. I want to live right there. I want to live with with such great joy because there's a sense in which as they were encircling the city and and praising, they they sort of saw it all come together, the great promise of God that he would have for himself a people that would would worship him and the temple was done and and they knew that God would live in their presence and and here was the temple right there that they could view and and even they entered after all of this great singing on the wall and, and they entered the temple area and they would really at that point in time it's all come together all these all these great promises of god and here's god now who lives among us we can we we know that he's among us Ah, he, he lives in this holy of holies oh he's everywhere but he lives among us in this holy of holies he our god we his people and we know that we have favor with him because because he's given to us priests who represent us he's given us sacrifices so that we can we can be forgiven our sins and here we are in his presence. We have his blessing. The great blessing of the priest. Now may the Lord bless you. That is, that is favor you. Speak well of you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We're secure. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That is, may his countenance be shining upon us, not frowning upon us, but shining upon us, and his, 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 his grace is upon us. That means that all of this isn 't because of, of our what we 've merited. But it's because he's loved us. And so there's a sense in which it doesn't really depend upon us. It depends upon him. And so we're secure in that. May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Yes, of course. Why wouldn't we have peace? God is among us. Our enemies can't defeat us because God is among us. And we can live here securely in his presence. Whew. I mean, what a great place to be in. But it doesn't end there. In fact, next week by chapter 13, we're going to really wish it had ended there. But for now, the question is, how how should we live now? What's going to happen now? You see, after this great renewal, this great revival, people have to go back to their ordinary lives. After a great renewal, some of you have experienced great renewals, whether it's at a conference or a retreat or whether it's private, whatever that happens, you realize that there's this you gotta go back after after all of that and, and just kinda go back to work. And go back to caring for the children and go back to cleaning up around the house and mowing the lawn and making meals and eating meals and 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 and, 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 and going out and buying clothes and shopping and other unhelpful tasks and, and then uh caring for those who are ill. And facing disease and illness and even death. I mean, just the normal things of life. How are they going to do that? Well, they knew knew in order to do that, they would have to get back into this normal temple worship. Somehow the temple would have to be maintained and and the priest would have to be maintained for all of of this uh, to work. Michael Horton, a theologian, in California, uh, teaches at a seminary they called Westminster West. Uh, wrote a book recently, and here's the title. The title is "Ordinary: Sustainable Faith in a Radical, Restless World." And I resonated with that title, at least. That's life, isn't it? It's mostly ordinary. For them, they had this great high point, and now it's all been done, and there it is. Now we have to live with it. We have to live in the midst of what all of this means for us. Ordinary, sustainable faith in a radical, restless world. How do we do that? Another author puts it like this, commentator. says, unlike a fairy story, however, this happy ending doesn't mark the conclusion of the book. The textaries to deal with matters which we we might too quickly dismiss as mere routine, namely financial provision for the regular temple services and purification of the congregation and obedience to the law of God. Without such routine, the author seems to imply, the joy of a single day can never be sustained, although it's usually the high points of success which impress themselves on the memory, the true gauge of spiritual progress in the individual, as much as in the community life is the extent to which what might be passed by as the normal has been transformed. The form of the narrative at this point is emphatically asserts that without such progress in regard to the ordinary, the climaxes and celebrations will fade all too quickly into tarnished memories. So that's where they are. Living in the ordinary now of this moment. So what are they to do? We see what they did. Uh, they, they appointed men over the storerooms. Uh, if you, generally, when we think about the temple, we think about the, the big places, the important places, the various courts, most especially the holy of holies, the, the holy place and the most holy place and all of that. But you have to realize that there's lots of practical stuff that, uh, that goes on. Uh, so they had storerooms around the outside for various purposes. you got to store all those utensils. You gotta store all of the basins, uh you gotta clean them up somewhere. Uh and, and here what they were storing were all the tithes and offerings that came in because they they were messy. They'd be animals, there'd be grain and oil and all the produce that would come uh from all of the people, their their tithes, their offerings, and somehow somebody had to get those and prepare some of them for the sacrifices and some of them to distribute for the priests and the Levites because that was their salary. That's what they ate off of. Uh, that's what they received. And, and and so all of that had to be distributed, very practical kinds of, of matters. It was interesting this morning, uh, Chad and uh, some of the other elders were praying together before the services we do, and okay, we were talking football, and and before we prayed, and and Chad said, I wonder what, he had no idea what I'd be preaching this morning. So, you know, he had no idea I was going to say this. Uh, he said, I wonder what the priests of old did right before they made the sacrifices and all of that. My guess is they were talking something other than perhaps maybe because that's real life. And here they were. And then they were about to do that which. And so here they are, they had very practical things to do, and they would live then a structured kind of life. You see, on the one hand, this community of, of Israel and these people, we could say, was had a rather organic existence because they were family. They loved one another, or were supposed to. They were friends. They had relationships. They sat around and they talked. And all of that was very necessary. They worked together as the people of God. All of that very necessary. But on the other hand, for that to really work, they needed an outer structure, that an organization that kept it all together and informed it, gave it meaning, right? And so they had a very formal structure. My goodness, a structure. It was structured, as the women of the church will be reading through uh, the Pentateuch and the Old Testament uh, right now, they'll be reading about, a very, about the structure of how they were to live, the kinds of clothes they were to wear, how they were to plant their planting, how they were to clean, how they were to do all kinds of things, what they were to eat, and not only that, but then the whole temple organization. They had priests who would represent them before God. They had Levites who would, who would take care of all the other things so the priests could do their work. And, and these priests would come out of the household of Aaron, these Levites from the tribe of Levi. And so those were the ones who were called to do that work. Others weren't called to do their work. Others were called to submit to them and to bring to them all that was necessary for them to do their work so that this community could exist in the presence of God so that these organic relationships could continue and have meaning. We are people who share this faith in Yahweh. And so here they were in the midst of this. It was organic, but it required an organization too. And so the structure existed. And so that's the ordinary. That's the structure. In a sense, it doesn't work unless you bring your animals and you bring your grain. It doesn't work unless you submit to, to the structure that God has put into place. But when you do, and when there's harmony in the midst of that, you see, then we are the people of God, and then we can relate together as such. You got the picture. You see what's happening. Now day after day there will be sacrifices made. They'll smell it all over uh, Jerusalem. And the aroma will remind them of who they are as the people of God. And then there will be special days when other sacrifices are made that have have more profound even meanings of various offerings. And all of this will continue. And people will work. And people will have children. And people will have fun. And people will do the things that human beings do. And that will be life. And it's this that will ultimately sustain them. Those of you who know me know where I'm going with this. (laughs) Because you see, this simple but profound application to us is that we live in the ordinary. There are profound events in our lives, profound events in our lives spiritually. For some of you, it may have been your time of conversion. Others, it wasn't profound, but for some, it was profound. For some, it may have been a moment with you and the Lord. It may have been at a conference. It may have been in a worship service. It may have been with you alone or with you with another person or in a small group, whatever that is. It's a profound moment, and you realize it just comes together at that moment. the joy, and the rejoicing, and the sense of the presence of God is so real. And you say, I I just want to stop and I want to live here in this moment. But we know that we don't. We don't. And so how do we live? What sustains that? And what sustains it is this sense of ordinary life. It's not unlike a family life, for instance. Family life has—it was is, is organic. A man and a woman—they meet, they fall in love, and all the romantic stuff uh, happens in their relationship. And it's just—you know—and there's certain times. You know, you can remember back the first meeting, the first kiss, the first—you know, your, your wedding day, whatever that is. You go, "Oh yes, it was so good." But you don't live there, right? You live at the bathroom sink, you know. <laughs> can't believe she didn't put the cap on the toothpaste. You know? I can't believe he didn't put the whatever. I can't put, you know, you live there. I mean, that's, that's where you live. Those, those kind of ordinary moments. Who's gonna make dinner? I gotta go to work. What's with the kids? Who's gonna pick them up? Oh, I gotta visit so-and-so. They're sick. I, my, he's dying. Those, those, we live there in a, in a very sort of, but what gives meaning to that? What gives meaning to that in family life? Where there's 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 God says there's particular roles. Husband, you're the head of your household. Be that. As Christ loves his church, love your wife, you see. Uh, wife, submit to your husband. And in that biblical, I have got time to unpack all of that. I hope that I know that size baggage for some, but take it in the best sense. Uh uh submit to your husband. This is the structure in which I live. Children, obey your parents. Parents discipline your children without uh being such that they resented. I mean, you know, you have this structure within it. And, and when that works, don't you know that in ancient Israel, I suspect there were some Levites that said, I could be a better priest than that guy. And he probably could be. But he wasn't to be. And so he had to live with that. I, I could do better. Right? There were some who, outside of the tribe of Levi, said, I could do a way better job working the temple. Every time I show up, the lights aren't on. You know, it's, it's too cold, it's too hot, it's too whatever. You know, uh, I could cut up that animal way better. But, but, uh, you know, I could wave that wheat, you know, from Kansas. Whatever it is, you know, I could do it better. But, but, but no, you submit in the midst of that. And all oh, that works in us, you see. This, this good. Good, good place. This community of worship that honors God. And so they went back. They went back to what David said. They went back to the Pentateuch. How are we to live now? And they began to structure that and work that. And and it isn't that it was without joy. There's this wonderful expression in verse 44. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. Now I could milk this for all it's worth, but I'm not going to. Because what their point was, was that they saw in the provision of God how God had called these various ones and ordered the community so that the priests and the Levites uh, were a blessing. Because the priests would represent them before God. And they wanted their priests to sincerely do that and to do that well. And so they rejoiced in them. Please, here, go and we'll provide. Go and do that. You may do this work among us so that we're blessed. And they, they too then in the midst of their, even their rejoicing, submitted to God. Maybe I can do this better than they, but I'll submit to God and rejoice. Because this is God's way, this is God's, God's way of doing this work and keeping us together. And blessing us as his community. Well, I think the application, as I say, simple, and now I hope you see it, I hope I don't even have to make it, but, but this to us as well. The church is organic. When two or more are gathered together, he's in their midst. The church is people. We know that. And relationships among, among people. Uh, it's, it's, it's an odd expression to say, I'm going to church. Because I'm church. You see. And so, I'm already there. In that sense, right? But not in another sense. We know what we mean when we say we're going to church. We know the church isn't a building. But sometimes we say, oh, where's the church? Well, it's here. You know, we get that. And nobody believes, nobody really believes that the church, the building is the church. That's why we call it the church house when we're trying to be cute and fancy. But but, but, the, but the shorthand is this is the church. We know, what are we saying? We know that church is organic in the sense it's me coming to faith in Jesus. It's me in relationship with you. And and, and 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 yet we also know that there's something bigger than that. There's some sense of organization. There's some sense of structure that says this is church too. A couple of guys uh, wrote a book, Kevin D. Young and a guy named Ted Cluck, which I think is a really bad name for an author. But... Um, uh, he's actually a sports writer. Uh, he's a member of Kevin's church. And Kevin's a pastor in, um, in Michigan, in the Presbyterian Church of America now. But anyway, they wrote this book. There's a couple of younger guys. It's entitled, Why We Love the Church. And, and the, the uh, subtitle is telling, In Praise of Institutions and Organized Religion. Uh, and, and these are a couple of young guys reacting against the current milieu of their younger guy generation. Because it, it's been going for a long time. I first was acquainted with this um, in a little book that I love, entitled Basic Christianity by John Stott. Many of you know I like that book. And I've memorized uh, most, if not all, of the footnotes, because they're all Bible verses in and, and categories. And so that helps me a great deal. And uh, But in the late 50s, uh, John Stott, uh, well... Respected, now deceased, uh, pastor, theologian, um, missiologist. Talked about people who say that they like Jesus. They're okay with Jesus, but they don't really like the church. And, and he kind of reacted a bit against that. Uh, and now there's a movement afoot that says, I don't need to even be identified with the local church. Uh, it's just an institution. We don't need such... Institutions, uh, they're at best unhelpful, at worst harmful. Now, again, we all know the harm that churches, denominations, or individual churches have caused people. Some of it because they've, some churches or denominations have left orthodox uh, theology and thus harmed people in that way. Others, we know, have been harmed because of various abuses that have taken place. I'm not here to um, uh, justify any of that, nor are they in a book like this. Um, Suffice it, I suppose, even that doesn't do it justice, that the church is made up of flawed, sinful people. Sometimes deeply flawed. But, but their point is that there's something valuable about the church as institution, as gathering. If I could read this paragraph, I hope it makes sense. I'll try to make it make sense if it doesn't. The problem with this minimalist ecclesiology, ecclesiology just understanding of the church and how we understand the church. Minimalist means we don't need a structure, we just need relationships. The problem with this minimalist uh, ecclesiology is that it confuses definition and function. And this is Kevin DeYoung writing. He says he's the pastor-theologian type. He says, I have no problem with defining the church as elect people of God or as the gathered Christian community or as all those who have put their faith in Jesus. These are Pretty standard definitions. But to say that the church is the people of God is is not the same as saying that wherever the people of God are, there you have a church. The problem with the previous sentence is that church is used in two different ways. At the beginning of the sentence, where it says that wherever the people of God uh, is uh, it's saying, the church is the people of God at the beginning of the sentence, the church refers to the universal organic fellowship of Christians. We're we're all joined together. That's first Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 13 says the Holy spirit baptizes us into one body. So when you become a Christian, you're a member of the church, the body of Christ, right? No question about that. Um, so of course the church is the people of God. The two are almost synonymous. But in the second half of the sentence, a church suggests a local concrete expression of the universal organic church. The church manifests itself in churches, and churches do certain things that are marked by certain characteristics. You see, that's the point. God has given us to each other in relationship, but He's also given us church as assembly, as gathering of people with a particular structure, as particular structures that gives meaning to faith, and in meaning to the individual relationships that we have with each other. For instance, Ephesians, in chapter 4, in verse 10, or verse 11, And he, the he that is Jesus, the maker, the builder of the church, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers... To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And you see, for church to exist, there needs to be an expression of these gifts. Uh, The apostles, the expression of the apostles... Uh, in the church, in a particular church, is the Bible. The New Testament, and particularly. He gave us the apostles. And so it needs to be apostolic in that sense, based on the teaching of the apostles. And prophets and the evangelists and, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Without that, without those gifts given, then there's no building up of the body of Christ. We don't mature together. That's how God has structured it. And, and so what we find... Like it or not, we find in the scripture elders in local expressions, in churches. Every time Paul planted a church, what did he do? He appointed elders. Oh, that's a quick expression for the fact that no doubt he identified those men who would be elders and he trained them in particular ways. He, he knew they were able then to oversee the life and ministry of the church. The function of elders so significant in the life of the church. We read it in Acts chapter 20. Uh, where Paul is meeting with a group of elders. Um, these are uh, elders in the church of Ephesus. Mm-hmm. Timothy was pastor. And um, he met with them in another town uh, because Paul didn't think he could get to Ephesus. He thought he was going to be killed. And in verse 26 of Acts 20, Luke writes, Therefore... Paul saying, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So then here's his instructions to these elders. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And so what we need to see in church are elders who oversee and those who recognize their eldership. And submit to them. All the flock for which the Holy Spirit has made you oversee to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And so there's a sense in which if one is outside of this church with elders overseeing, one will not be cared for as a believer as one ought. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I didn't cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And he's saying to these to these elders, Here's what's going to happen. Wolves are going to come against the church. You're responsible to make sure that those wolves don't consume the sheep. If you're a sheep, you have to trust in God's ways that these elders will keep you from being consumed. But without them in your life, you're vulnerable to be consumed. And so Paul says. I'm going to commend you to God, and the word of His grace it will build you up and give you the inheritance, which is believers among those who are sanctified. So there are elders, and and uh, when Paul talks to Timothy about setting up the church in Ephesus, and he says, here is what an elder is, and when he writes to Titus about the same thing, here's what an elder is, and when 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 Peter writes in First Peter chapter five, he writes to elders. As a fellow elder, Peter himself being one, and he says, he says, uh, don't be exploited, but, but, but love, uh, and be an example to the church and all of that. So it's no surprise then when the author of Hebrews writes to a church that's floundering, he writes to a church that, where people aren't paying attention, uh, to church as it is and thus are falling away. He writes them in Hebrews 13, verse 17. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls. It's exactly what Paul said elders were to do. They're watching over your souls. These folks obviously aren't being submissive to church as it's structured, and therefore they're in danger. Read the passages, the warning passages in Hebrews. They're devastating and scary uh, about what happens. And so he says, So therefore obey your leaders, submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, that is rejoice over them while they do it. Just like the the those in ancient Israel, rejoice over the, rejoice over them. I know this is self-serving, so but go with me on this. Uh, but because um, you do this, uh, you know, do it with joy. Why? Do it with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The last thing in the world the people in in ancient Judah needed was a bunch of grumpy priests who reluctantly made sacrifice for them. Didn't like what they were doing. He said, no, no, no. Keep them happy. And the same thing in the church. Keep the elders happy, if you will. Why? Because then they'll pray for you. And they'll study the scripture. And they'll teach you. And they'll watch your soul. And they'll love doing it. But if they're grumpy, then they won't. We know human nature. So he says, do it with joy. You do that, so I can say this. I think that's why we perhaps are healthy, as healthy as we are. But there's this sense of structure, you see, in the midst of it. That we can, and we need to gather together to worship. There needs to be times when we see each other. We never want to discourage, and we always should be desiring to get together—one or two of us, three of us—together. I guess one can't do it. Two or three of us, four of us together, in 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 at, at whatever the cool coffee place is now, and uh, wherever it's good to meet, and and whenever it's good to meet in small groups and otherwise to read the scripture together, pray for each other, and there's a sense in in which church is happening in the midst of that, not apart from the organization, but that very organic way of sharing life together and taking meals and 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 caring for each other, and all of that has to happen, you see, but. But there is a sense in which we need all of us, as many of us together as can, gather on a weekly basis uh, to see each other and to realize, oh, this is the manifestation of of the work of God in this community. And we look around and we see each other, we say, yes, I'm not alone. That's important. The church has been doing that from the very beginning. In fact, I I, I no longer, I, I used to have a little book on my coffee table, on our coffee table at home because um, I would read it there. It was just a, a nice thing to read. And many people teased me as they came over, because they thought my reading was a little bit nerdy. Uh, the title of the book is Liturgies of the Western Church. Uh, but it's fascinating. And um, and here's a quote uh, from that book, um, Justin Martyr, 2nd Century. He writes this, he says, On the day which is called Sundays, all who live in the cities or in the countryside, gathered together in one place, And the memoirs, that's how it's translated, the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as there is time. Now, what he meant by that is we read the scripture not only when we just have time, but we read as long as we possibly can. (laughs) As long as there's time, as long as we can do this. So longer than we do, probably. Uh, Then when the reader is finished, the president, translation in a discourse admonishes and invites the people to practice these same examples of virtue. Then we all stand up together and offer prayers. And as we mentioned before, when we finish the prayer, bread is presented, wine with water, and the president likewise offers up prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people are sent by saying amen. That's exactly what we do. So many centuries later, That's church. Is it church when a couple of believers are gathered together praying and reading the scripture? Yes, in some sense. But we can't do away with how God has structured us to be as church. Because that enables our souls to flourish. So there are marks of the church always. That is, how do you know you're in a church? Well, uh, historically, uh, theologians have laid out for us the marks of the church being uh, the preaching of the word, the word of God. Where else does this preaching of the word doesn't happen? and perhaps shouldn't happen at the Rotary Club or at, you know... Other clubs, other places, the garden club. But no, preaching the word happens. Church, when that happens, preaching happens. You know, you've walked into a church when there's the preaching of the word and that preaching of the word is a means of grace to us. As we hear it, we reflect upon God and God works in some certain ways. You know this in your own private reading of the word, but something happens when it's preached. To to, to preach in scripture isn't simply to teach. It's to herald. It's to proclaim. It's to speak that which is true. That's why it isn't a dialogue. It's a monologue. It's a it's it's a it's a it's a declaration. That's what, this is true. A couple of weeks ago, I said, you know, our human nature is we're listening to a sermon and we're just simply waiting till the preacher gets to the point of what I'm supposed to do. You see, and then there's stuff for us to do. But really, it's a declaration of what Christ has done. That's preaching. And then there's this sense of of a mark of the church, and we could describe it in various ways. Some, some people call it fellowship, and in the midst of that sense of fellowship, of love for each other, much happens, care for one another happens. And also real discipline, spiritual discipline, we say. And that might sound harsh, but it needn't, because it begins with teaching. It begins as, as we're taught, as we're trained. That's a disciple, as a learner. And so it's this training that happens. Always this discipline is happening. And the discipline happens as we're sharing together with life. Rick, in our men's uh, breakfast a few weeks ago, talked about this, this, this year's theme for the men of the church, of iron sharpening iron. And he, he used the illustration of uh, sharpening his mower blade with a sharpener. And sometimes sparks fly. They don't have to, maybe then. But it doesn't mean that sparks have to fly when we're sharpening one another. We're still to do it in love and all of that. But, but there, there is this sense... Of, of 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 disciplining one another all the time, just in our sharing of life and just in how we live and the examples of life. I'm disciplined often when I'm around you all and I see how you live and I go, oh, wow, yes, that's godliness right there. And so I'm disciplined by that in a, in a good way as I reflect that upon my own life. And then sometimes it's more significant than that. We need elders involved with us so that as they oversee our lives and they spot certain um, flaws, errors, sins in our lives, that it's their responsibility to include that in teaching. It's their responsibility at certain times to go and to, to really bring that about with the hope of bringing to repentance. And there are times, of course, we hope few, that one needs to be excluded from the life of the church, excluded perhaps from the table because of gross sins, unrepentant sins. And that's a good thing, a loving thing, because we never want to give people a false sense of assurance. And so there's that spiritual discipline that's a a mark of the church. And then there's the right administration of the sacraments. Baptism. The Lord's Supper, communion. And you see this too as... the preaching of the word and and this spiritual fellowship together is a means of grace. It's a means of grace, you see, as, as we think on this table. You remember, it was our Lord Jesus who on the night that he was betrayed, took bread after giving thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a means of grace as we ponder, as we remember, as we think of Christ and his death. In the same way he took the cup and after giving thanks this too he gave to his disciples and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds as often as we eat this bread and drink of this cup we declare the Lord's death until he comes. We're making a declaration heralding just from this table that which Christ has done. And we think of, of, of even this moment in the past where Jesus died and we come to this table then with great thanks. It moves us. It moves us to gratefulness. That is grace. It moves us to gratefulness. We think of His holiness, our sin, and how we don't deserve it, but now we're adopted into His family, forgiven our sins. That moves us to thankfulness. But it not only moves us from that past event, but it moves us to right now. And we realize That Jesus is here among us. And there's this very real sense of this blessing. That he blesses us. He says, you're mine. And that's the reality of the present. And he says, I will keep you from falling. And to present you blameless." before my Father, and that with great joy. He says, I'll keep you. Whatever it is that's happening in your life right now, others, I will keep you. I'll bless you. I'll keep you. My face is shining upon you. Not my frown, but my face is shining upon you. I'm gracious to you. None of this is because of what you deserve. So, so don't say, I'm not worthy. I, I, I've sinned. I know that. I forgive you. That hasn't kept me from drawing you. So come, face to shine upon you, gracious to you. My countenance is upon you. I'm watching, I'm looking, I'm with you. Please, be at rest, be at peace. And there's a sense in which as we come to this table in ways that we can't perhaps even explain, there is a sense of peace, a means of his grace to us. And his grace comes to us when we hear the word and we go, yes, thank you. His grace comes to us as we fellowship together, as we discipline one another in good ways. We go, yes, his grace to us. His grace comes to us at this table. And then we look even forward and our minds go to that day when he, Jesus, not me, but he, Jesus, serves us with every good thing in that great marriage feast. And there's something about that that works in us at the moment and relieves us of the moment and the stress of the day. And we know that a day is coming when. Let's pray, Father. I pray for me and for us that as we come to this table that we'll know we're in the very presence of Jesus. Take this bread, this wine, and set it apart that let us know that he's as close to us as these elements are even as they go into us. And Father, I pray that knowing that we're in his presence and that he Uh, is happy to be with us means that his grace is sufficient means that he has given himself for us so that our sins would be forgiven and he's given his righteousness to us so that we can be holy and blameless in his sight and thus we know that he is with us and we can have peace Father, work that grace in us to be assured of forgiveness, to know that you are with us and enable us even then to look to what is to come and to realize that this is just a foretaste. This is just a little bit. This is just a down payment. This is just the beginnings of what is to come. And Father, fill us then with a great sense of peace um, to know that a day is coming when all will be right and we'll be in your immediate presence. Father, please as we come, grant grace. This I pray in Jesus' name.